Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, I'll be talking to our technology writer, Ian Stedman, about the difference between wind and nuclear power. But first, I catch up with our Staggers editor, Anoush Shikalian, and politics editor, George Eaton, and I ask them a little bit about the rise of UKIP and what that means for the Tories and their immigration policy. George, do you think there's a risk that the Tories are playing into UKIP's hands by making immigration such a big issue, promising an emergency break, talking about further you know, repatriation of powers from the EU? Absolutely. I mean, one Tory MP says to me, as I quoted my column this week, if we make immigration the problem, people always think uh, UKIP is the solution because there's no means by which they can trump this brutally simple offer UKIP have, which is let's pull out of the EU and then we'll have full control over our borders again. I think they do need to recognise, as all parties do, you know, immigration is is rising up the list of voter concerns. There needs to be a response to that. But I think this extreme response of, of talking it up and questioning the, the free movement of people will ultimately harm the Tories. I mean, I think they'd be much better off returning to their strongest suit, which is the economy, where they have a, a large lead over Labour, uh, where UKIP aren't really players... And then they're much more likely to be seen as, as the party that people want in office. And you talk about immigration moving up the list of people's concerns. Do you think, it's, I mean, it's a slightly chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Do you think that that's down to the rise of UKIP or UKIP is, is down to that? Which way around is it? I think it's, it's probably a bit of both. I think um, it's obviously partly a response to the fact that over the past few years there has been much more immigration uh, than in previous decades. Uh, obviously, the Tories have put in uh, introduced the migration uh, cap on um, on non EU immigrants, but uh, immigration from the EU has remained high partly because growth there has been so anemic, and so whereas and unemployment's been so high, so people have had an an incentive to come here, and then obviously it's covered probably disproportionately by most of the media in terms of, uh, as an issue, the number of front pages devoted to it compared to, say, um, health, which is starting to rise up the uh, agenda now. But um, until recently, there's been um, very little serious media coverage of the NHS. Well, until, yeah, as you say, this week when the Daily Mail's been running a series on the Welch NHS, totally coincidentally (laughs) run by um, the devolved government in Wales, which is is a Labour one. Um, Anoush, I want to ask you, though, do you think there's a problem, a kind of credibility problem for David Cameron here? Because his headline pledge on immigration was this pledge to get it down into the tens of thousands. Mm. He's missed that quite spectacularly. What is the risk there that people say, well, you talk about an emergency break, but we know you're never going to do it? 
Yes, well, this is something that um, so part, partly David Cameron's um, moving to the right is, is to try and get his own party on his side, as well as the public to stop um, going over to UKIP. Um, but this doesn't work with his party. I was speaking to a Tory MP who's usually quite loyal, and he said he's just lost all credibility because he was sort of forced to promise this EU referendum, and it's going to be in 2017, and that's contingent on so many things. First of all, the Tories actually getting in, and second of all, probably having a majority. And then also, he um, he's making all these promises about being tougher on, on the number of EU migrants coming to our country, but it's unlikely he's going to be able to re- renegotiate that because um, it's a sort of core principle of the EU that we have freedom of movement. So he, he does lack credibility, not only in the eyes of the public, but among his own MPs. And I thought the interesting the other thing that happened this week was a poll showing that actually support for staying in the European Union is is relatively high. Um, and I think there was some further kind of breaking it down. of Basically, the more that people, you sort of give people a, a fig leaf of some renegotiation, any excuse to stay, really. Um, George, why why has the polls moved that way? Well, one theory, um, I think there probably is something in this, is that UKIP has contaminated the Eurosceptic brand. So most people actually loathe UKIP uh not most people, but a significant minority think that they're a racist, xenophobic party, a prejudiced party. And so because UKIP's defining mission is to pull Britain out of the EU, people are distancing themselves from that stance because they don't want to be associated with UKIP. I think the fading of the, the Eurozone crisis has probably helped, although there are signs it's returning now that people don't see the EU as such a drag on, on British growth. None of the main parties are even talking about Euro membership at any point in the future. I think that's probably helped. I think there's probably a pragmatic recognition among the public that if Britain's going to have any serious global influence, then it will be through through the EU. Um, and then I think I think you're right that actually um, with with David Cameron talking up the idea that we can get a better deal, we can get something back. Um, people think, well, yes, actually, it's not. It's not a choice between. It's not a choice between stay or stay or go. It's a choice between stay, but with um, with a, a different kind of EU. And Anoush, Labour's response has been interesting. So they promoted the uh, Blairite. I think it's probably. I know we, we always get told <laughs> off about using these kind of slightly outdated labels, but yeah, you know, he was a former aide to Tony Blair. Pat McFadden is now Europe Minister. What does that signal about how Labour are approaching this question? Um, well, it shows that they are trying to actually say something about EU membership because anyone who's held in Labour the shadow uh, Europe minister brief has had a tough time because they can't really say anything. First of all, they were prevaricating over whether or not they would agree to have a referendum. Now they've decided not to, but they still really didn't want to talk about it. Having a high profile figure like Pat McFadden from sort of the Blairite days of when they were sort of quite vocally pro means that they are moving in in a direction where they're actually going to speak about it and hopefully make the positive case for for Britain's EU membership because now that they're saying that they don't want to uh, sort of agree to a referendum they have to make the positive case and loudly. Well, that is leaves them in a very interesting spot I mean this is something that has been very big in the papers this week is the idea that who is making this positive case for immigration you know where where is that space in our in our debate and I think that's something that several columnists have picked up haven't they George this idea that clearly there was something in immigration in the sense that every, all politicians were you know very much let it happen over the last decade why are they so shy about it now I think it's because the debates got so out of control it's almost it's 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 too late and the, the politician who's probably come closest to trying to make a positive case for immigration is Nick Clegg, and that's that against Nigel Farage, and that was obviously a disaster because he's he's seen as um, as out of touch and as as lecturing 
uh, ordinary voters from a lofty to liberal metropolitan position. Uh, I mean, the position that Labour's trying to evolve is one between uh, equidistant between the Tories and, and, and the Lib Dems. So the Tories are taking what they see as the extreme approach of, of more arbitrary caps. Uh, the Lib Dems are much more happy with the status quo. Um, and Labour's saying, you know, we recognise their issues, but we're going to try and address them through sort of labour market regulation. They should and, and plan to talk up um, this policy they have of ensuring immigrants learn English because they say they take a sort of US style view of language as an important part of cultural integration. Um, and then they're also planning to make the welfare system more contributory. So they say other European countries, immigration is less toxic there because they have to put in before they take out. So they see that as one way that they can detoxify the issue of, of immigration. Um, so I think all parties recognise that um, you can't just um, bash voters over the head with, with statistics on the benefits of immigration. Perhaps you can if you're in the way you can if you're a columnist or a commentator that part of politics is articulating concerns. It's also about leading, though, and there's no doubt we do need more leadership on immigration. And finally, let's just mention the kind of spectre at the feast behind all these uh, you know, UKIP-y gestures, which is the Rochester and Strood by-election. UKIP are um, looking like they might very well hold on to that seat. I'm going to drop you two in it by saying, can I have a prediction about who will, who will win that seat? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Will the Tories take it back from Reckless now, newly UKIPped, or will UKIP get a second MP? Well, we were just discussing this earlier. I, I think that the Tories will keep the seat um, because they've got more stamina over the next few weeks before the by-election, which I think is on the 20th of November. Mm. They've sent basically all of their party staff up there who are staying there for the duration. They're sending ministers every day and UKIP don't have those resources yet. So I would call it for the Tories. <laughs> Go on, George. I'm, I'm going to disagree. I think UKIP, <laughs> I think UKIP uh, I think this one's in the bag now for UKIP. I think uh, the gap may well narrow, but I think it's pretty hard to overturn a 13-point lead for UKIP in in just uh, four weeks. And um, that will be a disaster for the Tories because they won't have just thrown the, the sort of kitchen sink at it. They'll have thrown the entire kitchen and they still <laughs> won't be able to win. And, pre- and pretty significant kind of policy, you know, a lot of leg being shown on this idea of the emergency break. It kind of makes you think if that happens in UKIP win and then another Tory MP decides that actually they're better off being, a, you know, UKIP's foreign affairs spokesman than they are being a another. Um, Tory backbencher. What you know? What are we going to be? What is David Cameron going to be promising people by March? It's a, it's a slightly terrifying. Well, we'll 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 come back to that one another week, perhaps. But for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Anoush. This week sees a milestone in British energy production. No, don't keep listening. Because for the first time ever, wind power has produced more energy than nuclear. It has. Thank you. I'm joined by Ian Stebman, our science correspondent, who is incredibly excited about this. Tell oh, me. Oh, it's very exciting. Um, you may have, uh, remember we had a very big storm, which was the remnants of Hurricane Gonzalo coming across the Atlantic on sort of Monday evening into into Tuesday, and that storm 
as always happens with these big storms, it creates this massive uh, kick for wind power. All the wind turbines uh, go a bit crazy. Um, and very briefly, there was this period where wind power was producing something like more than 14% of the UK's total energy demand, which was more than 13%, which was what nuclear was supplying. And that's a, a big milestone. The wind the wind uh, energy industry is, is sort of trumpeting its own horn on this. The only thing louder than the wind turbines was the sound of James Dellingpole's tears. <laughs> it was. But it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory, I guess, because um, the reason they beat nuclear was because A, there was a storm, and that always helps. You don't always get storms. Um, and B, eight of the 15 nuclear reactors around the UK were t- turned off for maintenance. So it's it's kind of a fake milestone as much as they're still pretending like it's a real one. Um, but where are we on, on renewables? I mean, I think it's it's fascinating that the wind of, of all of them seems to have emerged as the most likely to, in the short term anyway, to yeah, be useful. Yeah, well, the UK, because it's an island and it gets it's very windy a lot of the time, especially um, offshore, um, it has a huge potential for wind energy generation. It has the best rated in Europe, one of the best in the world. Um, we are currently sixth in the world for total uh, energy produced by wind energy. And... It's kind of sad because the coal, well, I say the coalition government, but specifically the Tories, the Lib Dems, this is one of those things where they're sort of um, drifting apart on uh, differentiation strategies. Yeah, is it? yeah. unfortunately, um, that's what we call it. The Tories at, um, this year have been saying very clearly that if they get elected with a the majority, they're going to get rid of all subsidies for onshore wind energy. And the Lib Dems have said that's a terrible idea. Labour says it's a terrible idea. Everyone who works in the energy industry who doesn't have a an interest in fracking or nuclear, which are the two things the Tories like, has said it's a bad idea. Well, this is what I find really interesting about fracking. So the objections primarily um, to wind turbines are, you know, they're kind of ugly and noisy yeah. and they kill birds. Although uh, I think when Alex Helm was here, he he found out that more birds are killed by domestic cats than by wind oh, turbines. Oh, definitely. So I mean, actually, really... It, and, and also, I mean, the aesthetic objection is just ridiculous this idea that oh they're really ugly and they blight the landscape as if giant cooling towers for nuclear power plants aren't also incredibly ugly well this is what i don't understand i was uh on the train up to scotland and, and going through cumbria and I, I saw a lot i think they look really beautiful yeah i like them too i mean i think we're in a minority there and we also have to remember that um as as with everything the ukip threat which is sort of digging into the tory rural vote um that those rural voters very strongly object to wind farms uh, more than anyone else, because they are the ones who have to live with them every day, and, and they tend to see them as a blight on this beautiful landscape. So going after them is an easy vote winner for the Tories, basically. So um, they, they want to get rid of onshore wind. They're okay with offshore wind generation in uh, the sort of seas around the UK, but even then they still want to slash the subsidies. And it's very sad, because we have a huge number of large wind farms that are coming online in the next couple of years, because they started construction at the tail end of the Labour, last Labour government. Um, and the uh, London Array, which is in the sort of Thames estuary, that's going to be the world's largest wind farm. It's going to generate um, some significant proportion of what a new nuclear plant would, would produce. So wind power has this like genuine role to play, but they just aren't interested in it because they well, it's not as financially viable either as well. Fracking has sort of like defined economic benefits, mm. which they're very keen on. But it, uh, but presumably fracking also runs out. I mean, it, it's yeah, that's also a problem. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's, the great thing about wind is that it just keeps on blowing. Well, fracking fracking supplies. Uh, th- it's this ties into the whole uh, peak oil 
hypothesis, this idea that sort of you, with with fossil fuels, you get to a stage where it's impossible to extract them economically, and then uh, we have to, we, it all starts collapsing the entire economic system. But what's actually started to happen is because we're starting to run out of stuff, uh, things, uh, supplies uh, like natural gas, which was previously seen as just completely um, untenable for extraction, is now economically viable. And that's what fracking is, is like, this is stuff that everyone just thought for decades was just completely pointless. It was so much faff to get to, but now we need it because we're running out of the easily extractable stuff. Um, it's suddenly becoming economically viable. Um, and with it come all kinds of problems. Like there's, uh, all kinds of accusations that they cause earthquakes and which is probably true. Uh, there's stuff about how the but small earthquakes, right? very small tremors, but, we don't know much like earthquake detection and prediction is such a very, there's a lot of um, uncertainty there and we don't know quite whether those small tremors might set off larger ones, um, whether it might cause problems with water tables as well. Mm -hmm. um, pro fracking people always say that like the gas is several hundred meters below where the water table is. So they should never meet, but there's a lot of evidence that that's not true. I just have one final question. Why is there an orangutan in the Scottish and Southern Energy ads? <laughs> because he's sad that 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 the world is is being destroyed by fossil fuels. I think I don't actually. No, but presumably if he's the Scottish and Southern Electricity, he's very pro fossil fuels. He, he wants more of them. He wants to cling to a cooling tower. He wants to cling to. But I thought the point was like he's his environment's being destroyed by wind farms. He's very upset about wind farms. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Well, um, if any of our, our <laughs> listeners have any idea why there is an orangutan on the uh, Scottish and Southern Energy efforts, please write or tweet to us at, at newstatesman.com. He's so sad. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And our producer is Philip Morn. Let's talk about wind power. Yes. <laughs> and a mouthful of tea. I'm sorry. I completely had no idea what to say after that. <laughs>